There's this weird line in that song. Beautiful the blood. Come on now. Blood, beautiful. I mean, I've never like seen a guy bleeding out and thought to myself, that is some handsome blood right there, right? But man, as we were seeing that earlier, I was thinking about, and this wasn't planned, but just as we sing, I'm thinking and going through the words we're singing. And this is what came to my mind is I thought about the, hey, we're done. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so here's what I was thinking about is the children of Israel, right? When they came out of Israel or came out of Egypt, rather. And can you imagine that night? They, they followed the Lord's instructions. They took a lamb. They put the blood on the doorpost of that home. And, and the wrath of God, the death angel, came through Egypt that night. But they were spared because the blood of that lamb had been applied to their household. And, and they walked out free. Right? They walked out no longer slaves, but now free people heading toward the promises of God. And I just thought, I imagine when they looked back at their home, that little modest, whatever the home of an Israeli slave in Egypt would have looked like, to look back and to see the most beautiful thing about that old home in that moment was the blood. How beautiful the blood, because the blood had changed them. The blood had set them free. We're in a sermon series called Worldview and Focus. And as we are walking through that, we're talking about the fact that everybody in the world has a worldview. And, and your worldview is how you interpret the world. It's how you see the world. It's how you understand the world. And your worldview then determines how you answer the most important questions that everybody's asking in life. Questions related to truth, for example, that's where we started, is, is there such a thing as truth? Or is it subjective truth? Is it your truth and her truth and his truth and my truth? Or is there the truth? And we answered that out of God's word. We talked about this question, does God exist? And if God does exist, then, then what is he like? And we answered that according to a biblical worldview. We answered the question, where do we come from? We looked at God's word again for that answer. And last week we looked at the question, what's wrong with the world? And I want to pick up there and kind of finish that out because a couple of these questions sort of overlap as they did last week and they will this week. But here's what's wrong with the world. God created it. He created it in perfection and he put one man in charge. I know some of the women go, well, that's what's wrong with the world. He put a man in charge, right? But he put Adam in charge of all of creation, really crowned him in a sense as the king of the earth, gave him dominion over everything that God had made. And then God made a covenant with Adam. Some people call that a covenant of works. This was God simply saying to Adam, as long as you don't do this, then, then you're going to continue on in this existence that you're enjoying. But listen, Adam, as you know, Genesis chapter 3, he broke that covenant with God. And I think sometimes we think about that and we sort of think, well, I, I kind of feel a little sorry for Adam. Like maybe that was a little harsh on God's part, right? Just to respond like he has. And now the whole world's messed up because Adam took a bite out of that piece of fruit. But, but listen, I want you to know that I believe that it was way more than a mistake that Adam made 
in that moment. Think about this, Adam literally. Now we use the word literally a lot in non-literal ways, but I am using it in the correct, correct form right now. He literally walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day. Nobody probably has ever walked with God quite like Adam did. He knew God at a personal level that's beyond what I can begin to fathom. He clearly understood. There was no miscommunication here. He clearly understood the terms of the covenant that God had made with him. He knew what God was like, and yet Adam and his actions, he chose to denounce God's sovereignty. He chose to dishonor God's holiness. He chose to despise God's righteousness. He chose to disregard God's word. He chose to deny God's love. See, Adam, the person who was created as our representative before God, he did more than simply bite a piece of fruit. He blasphemed against the holy God. He was guilty of that before God, the God who made him, the God who provided for him, the God who personally walked with him every single day in the garden. And in his sin against God, then that was passed down to all of us because he represented, it, represented us. Just like I told you, when, when our president declares war, man, that, that affects all of us. I didn't declare war on that other country, but he represents me. So now I'm at war with whoever we've declared war against. And in that moment, it was as if Adam had declared war against God. And that enmity between all those who have come from Adam is there still to this day between people and God, except there was this promise that happened in Genesis 3.15. When I do the timeline with the kids, I say, God stepped into the garden and he made a promise. That's Genesis 3.15. Look at this. God speaking to the serpent and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. The, the focus now, the attention is on the offspring of the woman, of Eve. And God says to the serpent about the woman's offspring, he shall bruise your head. That's lethal. And you shall bruise his heel. That's not lethal. Here God is saying something not about the offspring of Adam. He's saying something here about the offspring of Eve. The attention in Genesis 3.15 and the promise here is shifting off of the paternal line. And it's shifting onto the maternal line. The, the promise here is that one is coming. A person who is going to come from this woman who's going to deal fully and finally with this serpent. But here is the thing about this one who's going to come and do that. He will not biologically be a descendant of Adam. He will not have had Adam as his representative head over his life. See, when those children of Israel walked out of Egypt, they moved out of one kingdom and they were walking into another one. In that moment, they were no longer belonging to the house of Pharaoh. Now they were belonging to the house of God, right? And so this one is coming from this woman who's not coming from Adam. He's coming from, from the woman. He's not going to be under the headship of this man. He's not going to be under the curse of this man. He will not be under the curse of sin because he's not been represented by Adam. He's coming another way. Well, how could that happen? How could a human being come into this world to crush the head of the serpent and not have a biological father? 
How could he come into this world and not be represented by Adam like all the rest of us have been represented? Well, about a thousand years before Jesus was born, Isaiah the prophet wrote these words, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. See, the virgin birth of Christ isn't just nice to give us some interesting Christmas songs to sing. The virgin birth of Jesus is a necessity. There would be no salvation had Jesus not been born of a virgin. Only one not under the curse of Adam would be eligible to set the rest of us free from the curse of Adam. If Jesus came through the the representative headship, the covenant headship of an earthly father and his father and his father all the way back to Adam, then Jesus would be under the curse of sin. But Jesus didn't come through that line. Jesus is not under the curse of sin. He had no earthly biological father. He is the only human being that ever walked this planet not under the representation of Adam. He's the only person that's ever walked this planet, therefore not born under the curse of sin. Jesus was born free from the curse to set you and me free from the curse of sin. This is a beautiful truth here. He came into the world to be a new Adam, a far better Adam. He came to provide us with new representation before God perfect, flawless representation before God and to give us a new covenant with God. Not a covenant of works where God says, hey, listen, as long as you don't do that, we're good. But a covenant of grace, a covenant that Jesus made at the cross and he said, it is finished. The terms of this covenant, the fulfillment of this covenant, it's finished, it's done. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Jesus came to do that to give us new representation through this new covenant. But for him to do that, that would mean not only is he born of a virgin, but he's got to live a perfect and sinless life, which he did. It would also mean that he would have to be the Lamb of God, much like the Lamb that was his blood was shed for the children of Israel to come out of Egypt. He would have to lay his life down, body broken, blood shed for us, and he did that. And it would have to mean that there would be proof of the fact that he's broken the curse of sin and death. By rising from the dead. And he did that. So let's go back to the question, what's wrong with the world? All the worldviews have their answers to that, but the biblical worldview is what's wrong with the world is sin and the curse of sin. And the curse of sin in this broken world because of a broken man who broke our fellowship with God as our representative by the name of Adam. So that was last week's sermon. I just kind of tried to summarize it. So here's the next question then. Okay, if that's the problem, what's the solution? And, and the solution is God sent his only son into the world to break the curse of sin, to be the lamb that would shed his blood so that you and I could be delivered, so that we could be set free, to provide us with a new covenant that, and here's our key word for today, that reconciles, that reconciles sinners to God. And not just sinners, but, but more than that, reconciles all of creation. All of creation to God. In the first service, God gave us sound effects. We had rain and we had thunder. And I was like, yes, creation is calling out to us here today. God's speaking. See, Adam severed creation from its creator. But the new and better Adam, Jesus, has come to reconcile, to bring back together creation with her creator. Let's look at Colossians chapter 1. 
This is on my radar to preach through Colossians one day pretty soon. So for now, this will have to hold me over. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. Paul says, he has delivered us. He's talking about God here. God's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. I love that. I go back to Egypt again, right? They were transferred out of a kingdom of darkness. In that moment, because of the shed blood of a lamb, they were transferred out of that kingdom of darkness, and with one step, they walked into life. And here, Paul is saying about Jesus, that's what he's done. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We're no longer in the household of Pharaoh. For me and for you, here's what what that means. We're no longer in the house of Adam. We're now in the house of God. Because of what Jesus has done. We've been transferred from one household now into a new household. Verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is, verse 15, talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Let me just clarify that a little bit because some people read that and go, well, Jesus must not have been created or Jesus must have been created. He must not be the creator. He must have been created if he's the firstborn of creation. We need to understand, we know elsewhere, all throughout the Bible, it's clear Jesus created all things. Jesus is the uncaused cause of all things that exist. And that word firstborn there is the word in the Greek, prototokos, which doesn't have the idea of birth order. It has the idea of rank. It has the idea of authority. Jesus is first in creation because he's creator. He has authority. He ranks at the top over all of creation because he is creation's creator. He is supreme over it. In other words, and here's more clarification, verse 16, because by him all things were created. See, I just told you that. That's why he's first in creation because he made it all. He created all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And this is big, all things, all things. All things were created through him and for him. It's for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together and he is the head of the body, the church. That's key. Adam's not our head anymore, church. If you're the church, if you're born again, if you're in Christ today, you're in Christ. You're not in Adam. You're not in the household of Adam anymore. You're in the household of Christ. That's called the church. And Jesus is the head, not Adam. That's important. We have a new representation before God. Verse 18 continues. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. It's the same word, prototokos. He ranks in authority over all those who will be raised from the dead because Jesus is the one raising them from the dead. The resurrection isn't an event. Jesus told Lazarus' sister, resurrection is a person. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That's a big word, preeminent, but here's simply what that means. It just means he's first over everything. He's supreme. He is distinguished above all things. He is distinguished because there is no other creator. He is distinguished because there is no other curse breaker. He is distinguished because there is no other death defeater. He is 
first in all things. Verse 19, because in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile, to reconcile to himself all things. Right? So we think about creation there in the garden, Genesis 1 and 2 with God, right? And then that moment that Adam denounced the sovereignty of God, disregarded the holiness, denied the love of God, disregarded the word of God. In that moment, theologically, we call that the what? The fall, right? In that moment, all of creation fell and it all crashed. But now, look, the Bible's telling us here, verse 19, now in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him, through him to reconcile not just some things, but to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven. How's he going to reconcile all things? Look at the next line. Making peace by what? The blood, the blood of his cross. Beautiful, the blood, right? This is how he's reconciling all things to himself through the blood of the cross. Listen, we talked some about moral therapeutic deism several weeks ago, which is kind of the popular version of this fake Christianity, especially in America these days. And moral therapeutic deism, it it wants to make the cross all about me. Jesus died on the cross for me because I'm special. Jesus died on the cross for me because he loves me and he wants me to be the best me I can be. And he wants me to be happy. Well, listen, it's true that God loves you, but Jesus did not die on the cross for you because you're special. He died on the cross for you because you're a sinner. Look how much, how, look how special I am. Jesus died for me so I can be happy. Listen, we can easily fall into that trap. Listen, before the cross is about you and before the cross is about me. It's about God. It's about who he is. It's about his character. It's about his glory. Let me, let me try to explain this. Back to Genesis 3, where Satan slithers there into the garden. Well, he's not slithering yet. He's not been cursed yet. He comes into the garden and Adam sins against God. And in that moment, when Adam fell, there seems to be a divine dilemma now that's been created. How many of you understand today that God is holy, God is just, and God, God also part of God's character is there's wrath against sin. Everybody agree with that, right? But how many of us also agree But God is also love, and he's mercy, and he's grace, right? There's that too. And so here's what seems to be the divine dilemma that God finds himself in when sin comes into the world. I can flex my holiness and my wrath and my justice. And in so doing, I'm going to crush all of creation because it's in sin. Or I can flex all of my love and my mercy and my grace. But in so doing, I'm turning a blind eye to the sin and therefore condoning it. If God goes that way, He denies the fact that he is a God of love and grace and mercy. If God goes this way, he's denying the fact that he's a God of justice and righteousness and holiness and wrath. See, how can God express the glory of his love towards sinners and not condone our sin? 
How can he express his justice and his holiness towards sinners and not crush us because of our sin? It looked like God's glory, God's character was caught between a rock and a hard place. Because to go that way means he ceases to be this. And to go this way means he ceases to be that. And if he ceases to be any of that, then he ceases to be God. See, you need to understand this whole story is not about you. This whole story is not about us. Genesis 3, when Satan came into the garden, he came for bigger reasons than being a wrecking ball to you. See, that's what we think. He just came to mess us up. Satan attacked the glory of God in Genesis chapter 3. Satan attacked the character of God in Genesis chapter 3. This world, this grand narrative is not our story. It's God's story. It's not about God. It's not about us. It's about God. It's about his character. It's about who he is. And now it looks like his character, his glory is caught between a rock and a hard place. And you know Satan's eating that junk up. Because that's exactly what he wanted to do. I got you now, God. Because now you've got to either crush every sinner or you've got to condone every sin. So what are you going to do with that? It seems now that God can either obliterate us with his justice and forfeit being loving, or he can overlook our sin and forfeit being just and holy. It looks like God is cornered now by Satan. He's in this dilemma, it seems. He's going to have to, one way or the other, compromise part of who he is to respond now to our fallenness. It seemed like an unsolvable, unsolvable dilemma. Flex holiness at the expense of love. Flex love at the expense of holiness. It's an unsolvable dilemma, it seems, but it wasn't to God. We sing this. Some of y'all just got to start paying attention to what we sing because we sing some really good things. We sing a line that I re- before, long ago before time was planned, I, I re- before time began, re- redemption was planned. Jesus, the lamb slain before the foundations of the world. This is not a dilemma for God. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time. Listen, this was not a dilemma to God. This was a date on his calendar. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's me and you. Sinners, the ungodly. Paul goes on to say, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us. Is God a God of love? Yes. And he shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Is God also a God of wrath? Yes, we see both in the text. He is love and he is wrath. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled, there's our word, if we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received, here it is, reconciliation. Through Jesus now, we have received reconciliation. God has restored us to himself. 
a new covenant with himself because Jesus substituted himself in our place at the cross. You know what that means? At the cross, God did not condone sin, did he? Look at Jesus being torn to shreds. That's God doing that because God does not condone sin. Does God crush sinners at the cross? No. He crushed his own son in the place of sinners at the cross. Did God express the glory of his justice and his holiness and his wrath? Do we see that at the cross? Yes. Look at the cross. Do we see love and mercy and grace of God at the cross? Yes. Look at Jesus at the cross. Does God hate sin? Yes. Look at the cross. Does God love sinners? Yes. Look at the cross. The dilemma that Satan thought he had God in was destroyed by the cross. The cross destroyed the dilemma that Satan thought he had put God in. God's glory, all of it. His character, all of it. Displayed perfectly and fully on an instrument of torture. The cross, yeah, hey, it did. It provides our salvation. And I am not trying to diminish that today, but I, I am trying to put it in its right place because we gotta get this or we're gonna fall into what's happening in our society today. We're gonna fall into this thing called moral therapeutic deism. Before the cross is about us, it's about God. It's about his character. It's about his glory. It's about destroying the dilemma that Satan thought he had put God in that would give him the victory over God. It's about God. Before the cross is for Karen's sake or Jan's sake or Roger's sake, the cross before any of our sake is for God's sake. It's for him. First and foremost, the cross is about demonstrating to the world the totality of who God is the fullness of who God is, his character, his glory in full measure. It was the glory, it was the glory of God that drove Jesus to the cross. I know that messes up some of y'all's favorite songs. So be it. When he was on the cross, I was on his mind. You were, and so was I. But in small font, The glory of God was what was on his mind first and foremost. Big font, bold, underscored, highlighted. It was about God's glory. See, the cross should humble us. The cross serves to remind us how massively offensive our sin against God is. And the cross also serves to remind us how majestically beautiful the character of God is. All of it. All of it. Moral therapeutic deism wants to turn the cross of Jesus into a thing of human exaltation. Look how special I am. He died so I can be the best me that I can be, so I can be happy. There is no self exaltation at the cross of Jesus. It is all God exaltation at the cross. The cross is not a display of the infinite worth of man. Look how worth, look how much worth we must have. No, the cross is a display of the infinite worth of God. Long before it's about us, it's about him. If that makes you feel uncomfortable, that's probably because we are being inundated by man-centered false gospel in our world today. 
through the cross. Through the cross, the beautiful blood on the cross, Jesus is reconciling all things to himself. That's the answer to the question. What's the solution to everything that's wrong with the world? It's Jesus. It's the new covenant that he's made so that the world doesn't have to live in the house of Adam anymore. The world can live in the house of God now. We can be transferred out of that one place and into Christ. He's doing that. God is bringing everything back into perfect harmony, perfect shalom with himself. You know, Romans chapter 8 says, all creation is groaning. As I said that today, thunder, rain. I was like, wow, yeah, you're right. We can look around. We know creation's hurting. It's broken. It's messed up. We see that. But Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, in him, that's Jesus, we have redemption. We're being restored. How? Through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all his wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. So you go, well, somebody's going, well, Pastor Joe, look, he's, it was about us. He's lavishing us with all that. Yeah, we caught the overflow of God's commitment to God is what we caught. Does that make sense? Because God was so committed to God and destroying this divine dilemma that Satan thought that he had put there in the play in the garden. You and I get the overflow of God being committed to God. And you ought to be glad about that. Because if God was committed more to Roger than to God, God's guilty of the sin of idolatry and he ceases to be God. We get the overflow, the spillover, right? Just like with our children. My children are best loved when me and their mom love each other well and our love for each other spills over and flows over onto them. This is what the cross has done. So yeah, he's lavished us, but it wasn't first and foremost about us. It was first and foremost about who he is. He's lavished us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Remember, there's not a dilemma to him. It's a date on the calendar to do what? To unite all things, all things in him. That's perfect peace, shalom, things in heaven and things on earth. See, one day there's going to be a total reverse of the curse. Isaiah chapter 11, he points to a restored world. And listen, I don't know how all this is going to work. Some of this I read and I want to go, you know, that sounds great, but there's some things in this world that I don't know how they're going to exist there. And so what's going to happen with that, right? Here's what I know. I know that anything that I love here is just a foretaste of something far better that God's got in store for me one day. But I do have those questions, right? I mean, because like here, some of you are going to be offended when I say this because everybody's offended all the time about something in our world today. And by the way, do you know whose fault it is that we live in a society today that's so easily offended? That's the church's fault. Because for generations, we've been preaching a false gospel that says it's all about me. And it's all over our church. That's what we've been telling people for decades. The cross is all about you. You're special. And now when all these people who've bought into this false gospel, when life doesn't shake out the way they want it to shake out, now they're offended. Well, let's quit pointing fingers at all those that are easily offended and own it. We got to get back to preaching a God-centered truth, a God-centered cross, a God-centered gospel. All right, sorry, I chased that little 
rabbit here for just a minute. Here's what's going to offend some of you, maybe. In a few weeks, I'm hoping to stick a deer with a stick, with a point on the end of it. Pow! But yet, God's going to restore and redeem this world one day where I don't think I'm going to get to do that. Now, I think he's got something better that's going to take the place of that. I don't know what it's going to be like. I mean, I don't know if I'm going to draw back the bow and hit a deer, and it falls down, then it jumps up and goes, good shot. You know, I don't know what it's going to be like, but it's going to be good. So Isaiah 11 is pointing to this restored world, and it says this, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. That's crazy. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. Little, little kids taking lions on walks. And the cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. Yeah, we just finished feeding the baby. We're going to put them down with the cobra now for a while. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. No more screens, children. Go play with the snakes. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is amazing. And God is reconciling. He's reconciling and restoring all this brokenness, right? Here's the cool thing. Not just one day. He's not just doing all this one day. He's doing this today. See, I think a lot of us who believe with all of our heart, any minute Jesus could come back. And I do believe that. But I think the challenge with that is we begin to sort of live as if, okay, Jesus could come back at any minute, so to heck with the world. Because what does it matter? Because he's coming back. But that's not the way we ought to be coming at this. Jesus came, and, and through his blood, he's reconciling all things to himself. He's restoring and reconciling all things, not just one day, but today. In the places where you and I live, in the things that we're doing, in the lives that we're living. Today, where we live, he's at work doing this. Today, a young man who a couple of weeks ago had a pistol in his mouth is sitting in our church with a Bible in his lap. Because God's reconciling this broken world, not just one day, but today. A couple sits here today who a few weeks ago, they were sitting together at a divorce attorney's office. Why are they here today? Because God is reconciling all things to himself, not just one day, but today. Today in this room, there are boys and girls who are sitting here who not long ago, they didn't have a mom and a dad, but now they sit here with new names next to a mom and a dad who love them beyond their wildest imaginations. And here we are, soon to be an 80-year-old church, sitting on 72 beautiful acres who opens up her gate every single day and says, hey, whoever wants to come in here and hang out can come on. And whoever wants to come picnic can come on. And whoever wants to come fish can come on. And by the way, keep everything you catch. Who does that? And everybody wants to come in here and walk. And whoever wants to come and exercise. And whoever's looking for a place to rest. We don't care who you are. We don't care where you come from. We don't care what you've done. This is yours. You know why? Because we believe these 72 acres have been redeemed through the beautiful blood of Jesus, God is reconciling all things to himself. That's what he's doing. 
God's reconciling the world, yes, through Jesus. But not just through Jesus alone, but now through Jesus' people. Through us, his church, who are living under his representation. Those of us who are living in the house of God, no longer in the house of Adam. Guess what, Jeremiah? God is working through us to reconcile all things to himself. He's reconciling the world through the work of Jesus on the cross. And he is at the same time reconciling all things through the person of Jesus that is indwelling the hearts and the lives of his redeemed men and women. Second Corinthians, I'm not making this up. It's in the Bible. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 18. All this is from God who through Christ who through Christ, right, reconciled us to himself and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He's raised us. He's redeemed us. He's restored us. He's reconciled us so that we can be his representatives of restoration. We get to be his ambassadors of reconciliation to this world. We are here to bring people and places and things back to Jesus. Listen, there's no doubt people are the most important at the top of that food chain. But listen, Baptist, Jesus didn't just come to redeem people. He came to redeem places. I believe he wanted this 72 acres to have his name on it. Don't you? I believe he's redeeming people and places and things. And, and look, another Diversion off the notes for just a minute. The way our world is constantly seeking to create these false divisions all the time. And, 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 and some of you, I don't know if you're in the house of God, you're in the house of politics. But there's this whole thing, right, where now either you're an environmentalist or you're an evangelical Christian. Well, who made up that rule? Who got to decide that? I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. He created all things. Of everybody that lives on this planet, I ought to care more about it. And if you're a follower of the creator, you ought to care more about it than anybody else. I'm not a tree hugger. I'm a Jesus hugger. I'm a creator hugger. And so I make decisions every single day, not because I'm an environmentalist, but because this is my father's world. I mean, my mama used to get on to me if... I didn't take care of my room, and he's given me a whole world, and it's his. And I believe he's raised us up through Jesus to reconcile. Yes, first and foremost, because the souls of people are going to live forever. But it's, that's not all. And I know Jesus could come back before I finished preaching this sermon, but I still did not throw my McMuffin wrapper out on the interstate on the way to church today because it's my father's world. All of it. Don't, don't get sucked into those false fights that the world's creating. It's foolish. Church, we're here. here here's why I'm going off on that. Because we're answering the question today, what's the solution for the world's problems? Us. Not us, but Christ in us. That's the solution. He's, through his blood, reconciled us and given us the ministry of reconciling every inch, every acre, 
every soul, every person, every family, every school, every community to bring all of that under the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Men, if you're bored, it's because you ain't getting the truth. That's the truth. We got mission here. We got God-sized purpose here. We're, we're, we're to be serving our king. We're not, we're not here having sing-alongs until he comes. We're at war. And God has called us to do what Jesus has done for us. To storm the house of Adam and empty it and fill up the house of God. I believe with all my heart that the gospel is the message and the church, the reconciled men and women of God, we're the plan. We're the plan. We are the plan of God in this world. That means... If that's true, and I think it is, that the church is the plan for reconciling this world to God. That means that the church can't go on being another weekend option among many. We got to get back to seeing the church for what it really is in the mind of God. Not another weekend option, but headquarters for world reconciliation. It's not just another choice in the ABCD things of what are we going to do this weekend. It is, this is ground zero for storming the house of Adam and grabbing everything and everybody out of it we can and bringing them to the house of God. Seeing them walk out of the curse and out of condemnation and into the glorious light of Jesus Christ. I'll just finish with this. Let me give you four things to think about. They're not on the screen. This is just extra. Number one is this. Know who's representing you before God. Nobody on this planet is ever going to represent themselves before God. You're either going to be and are today represented by Adam or you're represented by Jesus. Do you know today beyond a doubt who, who you're represented by today? Have you put your faith in Christ, the shed blood that he left on that cross to take you out of the house of Adam and into his family, into the house of God. Nail that down today if you've never gotten that nailed down. Second thing I would say is this. If you've never followed the Lord in believer's baptism, you need, to, you need to do that. If you've trusted Christ, you need to do that. Two reasons I think that's a big deal. One, when you physically enter into that act, it is an affirmation to your soul that I'm not in the house of Adam anymore. I am in the house of Christ. I belong to him and I belong to his people. And it is so soul affirming. It becomes an anchor point, I think, for a believer. But it's not just an affirmation to your soul, but it's an announcement to the world of whose house you're in now. I belong to the Lord. That's a big deal. And if you've never done it, you need to do that. The third thing I would say today, especially now more than ever, is you need to belong to a church. This isn't a plug to get you to join Grace Life. It's a plug to get you to join a Bible-preaching, Christ-centered, living church somewhere. The middle ground of lukewarm Christianity is all but gone in the year 2022. 
If there's ever been a time not just to be at a church, but to belong to a church with all of your life, it's now. It's now. And you need to do that because the, plan, the church is the plan for reconciling the world to God. The church is the plan. It's not enough to be there. I know that's not popular, but I think you figured out right now. I'm, I've quit running for a popularity contest a while back. And the fourth thing I would say is all of this and finally go all in. Go all in. And it just amazes me what we go all in for. And God has done this for us. And he said, now I want y'all to give your whole life to doing that. And I'm going to be giving you everything you need to do that. But we're giving all of ourselves to stuff that isn't doing that. Right? And this morning I'm just saying, hey, let's, let's go all in. And give Jesus all of our lives today. Is he going to come back today? Man, I sure hope so. But Chuck, I'm going to live like we got another thousand years. I mean, I, I, somehow, some way, we got to get after it like this is the last day. And at the same time, get after it like we're still in the days of the early church. Right? So God, help us do that. God, I don't want to play church. I don't want to go through the motions. I don't want to, I don't want to be around people that that's what they're doing. God, you've reconciled me. You set me free from slavery and sin and death. You've brought me out through the shed blood of your son, Jesus. Why would I piddle around with things that aren't about that? So God, help us today to give you our lives completely and fully. God, help us to stop being finger pointers at all that's wrong. And to be reminded that you've reconciled us to you through Jesus so that you would use us to reconcile all things to Jesus. We're not here to point out the problems. We're here to point people to the answer. So God, change our hearts. Raise us up today so that your church is a better and more clear reflection, God, of who you are in this world. In Jesus' name. Let's stand. Let's worship the Lord. Let's respond today to his word. That may look like being on your face at these steps, seeking the Lord in prayer. It may look like worshiping him from the bottom of your feet to the tips of your fingers. I just don't think it's a time for just business as usual. Let's go.